Voices of Experience, coming up next. A group of visiting Japanese school kids were there, and <laughs> one of them came up and told me that I was famous. I was a hero in Japan. In Japan? <laughs> I said, who knew? You know, I never get out there. Ken Grevy Jr. and Rick Kaminsky. Oh, uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> in 1939, I made $250 a month, plus $3 a day meal money, which wasn't an awful lot. But I had a lot of incentive clauses in my contract. Well, now that I've had the uh, wisdom of a few years to look back, I knew it was the right move. But at the time, everybody went silent because we never believed it was true. It just couldn't be true. Um, I'm not sure that any time you lose a hero that you believe of that is actually happening. But. That's Rick Kaminsky, Ido Vanni, and Chester Rito. What do all these individuals have in common? They all love baseball and participated at different levels in baseball and are participating now in the greater Seattle-Tacoma area. Let's start with Rick, better known as the Peanut Man. He was throwing peanuts in the Kingdome and in Safeco Field for 24 years until his untimely death in 2011. His peanut tosses were so incredible that they would be featured on the highlight films of ESPN Sports Center, along with the review of the great plays in Major League Baseball of the day. I caught up with Rick in the mid-1990s, and I want to replay this interview, along with a similar interview I had with Eno Vanni. He was born in Seattle, went to Queen Anne High School when it was here. If you remember Six Stadium, it was located in Rainier Valley, where Lowe's Home Improvement now sits. He got the first hit, scored the first run, and also led the Seattle Rainiers at the time to three consecutive Pacific Coast League championships. Chester Rito is one of the hosts for the Dugout Club with the Tacoma Rainiers. And uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I am one of the part owners of the Rainiers. And he is a walking encyclopedia when it comes to baseball. And I want to relate an interview I had with him just a couple weeks ago about what it was like growing up in Brooklyn and following baseball. My name is Paul Casey, your host of Voices of Experience. If you'd like to call me at 206-459-5536, I'd like to talk about anything as it relates to experience in whatever walk of life you were involved with, that's 206-459-5536. Back with Rick, Ito, and Chester in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. I hosted a radio show in the mid-1990s by the name of Voices of Experience. And in that program, I had a segment called Profiles of Experience. And one of the people I profiled at the time was the peanut man by the name of Rick Kaminsky. I knew Rick pretty well and uh, really enjoyed his infectious personality and his great aim. But rather than going into great detail here, I think it says it all by the interview I had with him. His just his desire to learn, his sense of humor, and greeting life with so much excitement 
day in and day out. Our guest this week on U.S. West Profiles of Experience is Rick Kaminsky, but much better known as the peanut man at the Kingdom. He even refers to himself as a major league nut. Rick has been pitching peanuts in the Kingdom for over 22 years. And Rick, how did you become the peanut man? Well, actually, it's a strange story. As you know from, from our past, I was a... Uh, I was a Vietnam vet, and I was uh, at Shoreline Community College, where I was student body president, where I happened to meet you, and you were student body president at, at Wazoo. That's right. And uh, from there, I went to the UW on the GI Bill, and uh, boy, after, <laughs> after the four years, I took a break from school and decided to go to work to get a breather at the Kingdom. 22 years ago. Yeah, it was. 22 years ago. Uh, well, actually, 21 years ago, and this is just the beginning of my 22nd year. Rick, what's an event at the Kingdom that stands out in your mind in, like, 21 years that just really was something very special? From my perspective, uh, Chicago White Sox uh, bullpen gave me a standing O one time for a, for a shot I threw, for a number of shots, actually, I threw in their area when they were looking. That's very unusual, but I was really honored because they were professionals, you know. All right. Also, one time, this is actually in 95, a group of visiting Japanese school kids were there, and <laughs> one of them came up and told me that I was famous. I was a hero in Japan. In Japan? <laughs> I said, who knew? You know, I never get out there. Ken Griffey Jr. and Rick Kaminsky. Oh, uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> and then uh, after Chris Brosio threw his no-hitter a few years back, he, sure. uh, he signed a T-shirt calling me the best arm in the West. Probably the most embarrassing moment I've had was, you know, somebody will... Go up, I tell them to use two hands. They put their hands right in front of their face, and they don't close their hands in time. The bag goes right through their hands, and they're eating peanuts the hard way, bag and all. Before they wanted to. Well, you got to take them out of the shell. I recommend it. Hey, Rick, before we leave this morning, what uh, current projects are you working on? Oh, I'm, I'm currently beginning a, an association with the Liquidators Outlets. We've been talking to Rick Kaminsky, the peanut man, known as a major league nut. Now, <laughs> that's on his card. I didn't say that. <laughs> Rick, true, thank you true. very much for uh, being with us this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Thank you. I appreciate it very much, Paul. Thanks for having me. See you down at the Dome. Yes, Rick, we saw you down at the Dome for many more years, and then at Safeco Field. I believe that he was tossing peanuts in the King Dome and at Safeco Field for over 30 Five years. Amazing. You know, at this point, we often say uh, this individual was one in a million. Well, you know, anybody knows that I'm not exaggerating when I say Rick Kaminsky was one in a million, most definitely. My commentary today is on the dynamics of family, and friends in your business. Generally speaking, seeking business advice, or let's say even more, a partnership in your business should be discouraged. Family and friends are for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and vacations. I have seen many businesses get into trouble because you really can't separate your business from personal relationships. One of the main reasons I think that people want to have a family member or a good friend involved in business. You have some relationship with them, some history, and mainly you think that you can trust that individual. Look back. Have you been duped a lot? If so, that means you score low in the part of my quiz, which asks if you exercise good judgment. And if you do, you will find if an individual's approaching you and wanting to do business with you is trustworthy. If your gut tells you they're not, run.
true Seattle baseball legend, Ed O'Banny, is with us this morning on Profiles of Experience. He grew up in Seattle, attending Queen Anne High School, and had the first hit, first stolen base, and scored the first run at 6 Seattle Stadium that stood in the heart of Rainier Valley between 1939 and 1978. He was a player on three championship Seattle Rainier baseball teams of the Pacific Coast League. He was also manager and general manager in later years of the Seattle Rainiers. He was also the director of sales for the Seattle Pilots during their one and only major league year in the Pacific Northwest. Good morning, Mr. Vanny, and welcome to Profiles of Experience. Do you think Seattle proved it was a baseball town last fall? I've always said that Seattle was a baseball town from back in the golden eras of 1939, 40, and 41, when Mr. Sick took over the franchise and built a new stadium out there in Rainier Valley called Sick Stadium. I've always said if you give Seattle a winner, the people would go out in the cow pasture to watch you play. What did you make as a player for the Rainiers in 1939? In 1939, I made $250 a month, plus $3 a day meal money, which wasn't an awful lot, but I had a lot of incentive clauses in my contract. Well, what do you think about player salaries today? Well, I, I think the player salaries might be a little out of line, but if they keep getting out of line, even if we build a new stadium, they're going to have to scale a house seats, the prices of the seats to accommodate the salaries that are going to come in because those uh, those suites up there, not everybody's going to be able to go up there and sit in those suites. You've got to think of the poor soul that brings a wife and uh, four kids to a ball game. They've got to have seats for those people to come. They're the best salesmen you got around. And if they can't go to the ball game, who's going to go? Do you think the uh, baseball strike permanently hurt baseball? I think it did, and I certainly hope that it doesn't ever happens again. If they do, if they have another baseball strike, they might as well pack up and find a good padlock for these doors on these stadiums because the people will not put up with it. Why do you think that baseball is so enduring and so popular? Well, it's always been a popular game because it's a simple game. The rules haven't changed in 100 years except for this DH that they have, and uh, it's the same confines. You're still playing the same game with the bat and ball and the glove. And the fundamentals of the game are still the same. If you want to bunt, you got to be able to bunt a guy over. you got to hit and run or a stolen base. The only thing that I'd say that it's upgraded to baseball is probably the playing fields that they have today. And probably the uh, uniforms. You played in those wool suits that were, I imagine, extremely hot. We'd go into Sacramento. The temperature would be 115, 118, 120, and you play in those wool suits. And, boy, it was hot. Yeah, we had a 200-game schedule in those days. We played uh, uh, a week in each town, which was, a, which was a good thing because you could unpack your clothes and you could set up house like you wanted, you know, and you'd be going to the ballpark each day and you'd probably face one pitcher on Tuesday and you'd see him again on Sunday or Saturday night, which was very helpful. And you learned uh, to set up schedules on your own little scorecard, how this guy pitched me and got me out the time before. How am I going to hit him again on Saturday night or Sunday? Well, what was your favorite team that you played on and why? Well, my favorite team that I played on here in Seattle was the 1940 team. As a team and as a unit, they played together with good teamwork. And to me, the 1940 team was probably the best one that, that I had here. And I also was associated with many other pennant winners here in Seattle. Baseball legend, Ido Vanny, thank you very much for spending time in Voices of Experience. Thank you, Paul.
My wife and I attended the Crosscut Festival at Seattle University over the weekend, and one of the panels was called, Has the Next Civil War Already Started? Now, there were mixed views on whether it has or not. But I just got a brief clip from that session, and Oren Cass, a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute, talked about the meaning of Trump's victory right on the heels of President Obama's. I want to say briefly one thing about Trump, because I didn't talk about Trump at all initially. I just want to emphasize how overdetermined Trump's victory is. I mean, it's very easy to see Obama was living in the White House, now Trump is living in the White House. America is completely different. But if you actually compare the, the election returns from 2012 to 2016, the share of whites who voted for Romney and voted for Trump was virtually identical. The, the actual difference was that Trump did slightly better with non-whites, and Hillary won the popular vote by three million people, and the, you know, who, who is actually sitting in the White House was a function of tens of thousands of people in a few states. So to, psychologically, the Obama to Trump switch feels massive as a description of what is actually happening in the country and who the people in America are and how they feel, it, there, I just don't think there's very much evidence for it. Um, when, when I talk about the, the sort of economic divide and, and what that means structurally, one place I think is incredibly important to start is on the education front and, and how we conceive of college. Um, I think the folks who sort of at one point had college for all as the mindset, and now we're backing off that a little bit, but that's certainly still the aspiration for everybody. Um, I think that that was very well-meaning, but it, it has proven to not at all reflect people's capabilities, interests, whatever you want to ascribe it to. Most Americans still aren't earning even an associate's degree. And yet, that's where we put all of our focus in high schools, that's where we put all of our resources for post-secondary. Increasingly, HR departments just throw, requires college degree on the description for absolutely no reason. Uh, and so both in policy terms, shifting that and saying, you know what, actually, if, if you think college is a good fit for you, that's great, but we owe at least as much, and given where we are as a society, we probably owe more to the non-college side of the equation uh, is a huge shift. But then culturally talking about that differently and recognizing that, for one thing, most people, you know, the phrase is they, they work to live, they don't live to work. What their job is, is not the purpose of their life. Um, the idea of a dead-end job is offensive and foreign. And a job is something you do to provide for your family and support all the other things you're going to do with your life. Um, and so all of our commencement speeches and all of our energy behind this idea of the job is self-fulfillment and purpose and so forth, um, that's not actually healthy for, for what most people aspire to and are likely going to, uh, to have at the core of their life either. So, so I think that's a huge piece to put at the center of the discussion. Uh, and then briefly, just to, to kind of flesh out around that, I think we have to recognize there are all sorts of trade-offs on things like environmental quality. If you earn 200K a year working in an office, always, always preferencing the cleaner environment is smart. Uh, if you earn 35K a year in a job in the industrial economy, you would strike a different trade-off a lot of the times. Now, my takeaway from what Oren Cass had to say is that the shifts in demographic voting hasn't shifted all that much from when President Obama won his victories in 2008 and 12 compared to Trump's win in 2016. Let's always remember, as he pointed out, Hillary Clinton did win the election by 3 million votes. And to put that into more perspective... Seven people have served in the office of president with less than a vote total of three million. 
I became a partial owner of the Tacoma Rainiers uh, several years ago. And it's great going down to Cheney Stadium to see some of the games there. You see a lot of Seattle Mariners actually come through there and to play only up in the big leagues at Safeco Field. Another individual who makes it such a pleasure is a man by the name of Chester Rito. And he works as an usher in the dugout club. And he is a walking encyclopedia when it comes to baseball. He grew up in Brooklyn. I sat down with him last Saturday night in a bench. You'll hear some of the crowd of the Tacoma Rainiers game in the background. And my first question to him, how did he find his love for baseball? Well, when I was a young lad and wore smaller clothes, my dad and mom would take me down to Ebbets Field. And Ebbets Field was one of those little bandbox, asymmetrical ballpark in Brooklyn that was down there uh, in the 50s when I was a young lad. Of course, the history of baseball and the Dodgers are synonymous, but they got their name because my dad used to tell me that they got their name because the trolleys used to end at Ebbets Field and people would have to dodge around the trolley cars to get into the field uh, to watch the baseball game there. So Ebbets Field was my first start and I was lucky enough to see players like Jackie Robinson and Gil Hodges and Pee Wee Reese for one of two reasons. One, they were our heroes, of course, because we were not allowed to go to Yankee Stadium and see the uh, Yankees play baseball. But most of those players lived right in the neighborhoods where we used to play. So we would see them walking up and down the street, going and buying groceries. And uh, it, it made it a very homey type of environment. So you felt like you know the people there. It was a very close ballpark. Uh, you sat right on the field pretty much. Only held 26,000, but uh, it was enjoyable. Now, how heartbroken were you when they moved west? Well, now that I've had the uh, wisdom of a few years to look back, I knew it was the right move. But at the time, everybody went silent because we never believed it was true. It just couldn't be true. Um, I'm not sure that any time you lose a hero that you believe of that is actually happening but it got to the point where it took focus a few days afterwards in fact the Giants were the first ones to leave Brooklyn didn't leave until after the Giants went out to San Francisco Horace Stodham made the move because the Giants were losing money they never lost money in Brooklyn but if you look at the dynamics of how the uh, people changed the environments in New York uh, it was a good move for the Giants and, of course, the Dodgers, but we were heartbroken. Uh, it was like a member of the family had left. So what is it about baseball that you love? I mean, and I guess the question I like to ask directly is, like, do you remember the moment when you just fell in love with the sport? Was there one moment or was there a series of moments? There really wasn't any moment. I just fell in love with it. it was, I, I grew up with it, and when you grow up with something, you don't question it. It's part of who you are. Uh, the thing about baseball to me is that no matter where you are, um, you take a bat and a ball and you can have a game. And at springtime, um, the flowers come up, the grass becomes green, and baseball becomes alive. And baseball, as I've said to lots of people, is a game of hope because everybody comes to the ballpark and maybe today will be the day that I catch a ball. And on that day, if I don't, It'll be the next day. So there's always optimism at the ballpark. Everybody's going to win the pennant at the beginning of the season, and then slowly it sits in, but every year it renews. 
How did you get to Tacoma? Series of employment deals. I used to sell furniture for J.C. Penney, and uh, in my travels, I've always wanted to go to different places around the United States. Came to New York, went to Mexico City for six years, where I studied to become a teacher. Teaching wasn't the best thing to do, uh, even though I got my degrees. So I started selling furniture, and we started to work for pennies down in San Francisco, and eventually came in Tacoma, where I worked up here for 31 years. And so how did you find your way to Cheney? I called up one day because I was uh, out of work, I had retired, and I was bored. And so on, on Strictly a Lark, I, saw, I said, gee, maybe they could use an old guy out of Cheney Stadium. And I owe that favor to uh, Mallory, who picked up the phone, and I explained my situation. She said, do you have any personal experience with the public? And I said, yes, I sold furniture for several years. And what about baseball? I said, well, I grew up with my dad uh, in Brooklyn. We sold pencils outside of the stadium for a nickel. And at those times, you could buy pencils, which said Brooklyn Dodgers on it. And we sold them with the scorecards, which cost a quarter. And what year was that about? 1953. Okay. And so she said, come on in. And I didn't. I had never met her. I didn't know where I was going, but I knew where Cheney Stadium was because it must have been a foreboding of truth because five years before, I won a car on car night that Stan Nacarado used to have out here. And the car was so big, I couldn't even fit it in my garage. But I came out here and spoke to Mallory when the offices were on Union. And I talked with her about 30 minutes, and she said, that's it, you're hired. And that was the greatest time that I could ever have because it made me a little boy again, which I had forgotten about. Uh, How long have you been here? I've been here nine years. And uh, it was enjoyable. And when I got around the people and I started getting the excitement back into me, I figured out what can I do for them. And I tell stories, bring a paper once in a while, make sure they have a good time. And sometimes that's the important thing because then you get them to tell you their story. And you talk to somebody who remembers when his dad brought him as a little boy in 1962 to GD Stadium to see the Giants and their eyes light up and you can just see the relevance that they're telling their story to somebody who's telling you about the same thing. And it makes it all good. It makes it all good. Final question. Sure. Um, you uh, watch a lot of games, experience a lot of seasons. Is there one game or season that sticks out in your mind as being your very favorite? Well, that's a tough question to answer because what I've seen, I, I yeah, I'll be honest with you because um, I can't tell you the year because it happened many times. The Dodgers always used to play in the Yankees uh, in the World Series except for 1951 and 1954. And as a kid, I would be walking home from elementary school. And in those days, there was no air conditioning. Everybody sat on the stoops. And I could walk home from my elementary school, walking among the neighborhood with the windows of the apartments open, and I could hear Vin Scully broadcast the game on the way home as I walked. So when I got home, I knew exactly what happened by the time I got there. And that's, there's no one thing I could call a highlight in my uh, career other than that, because that was special.
You have to envision people on a stoop on a July afternoon or a June afternoon sitting there listening to the ball game on the radio because TV was in its infancy. And it wasn't until years later that came into prominence. But think about walking on a city street listening to the background noise of the radios in different parts of the city. And then Vince Scully on top of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was just amazing. He just retired, what, two years ago? That's right. Amazing, amazing man. Wow. He had one of the voices, and that's that's part of baseball. The sounds of the game, uh, the sounds of microphones, uh, the different noises that you hear. And one other thing I can tell you, Paul, one of my greatest feelings is that after the game, sometimes you'll see me, more often than not, sitting down after my shift, listening to what happened here before. It's an amazing thing. That's Chester Rito and an interview I had with him last Saturday night at Tacoma's Cheney Stadium. I could go on and have an interview with him for another several hours. I mean, we just scratched the surface in this interview, and I will have him back sometime in the future. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. If you'd like to get in touch with me, my phone number is 206-459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. Thank you to Rick Kaminsky, the peanut man, and to Ido Vanny. I consider to be Mr. Baseball in Seattle. I mean, he was born here, went to high school here, played AAA baseball here, managed here, was also involved in the first Major League Baseball team in Seattle, the Seattle Pilots. And to Chester Rito, who is doing a great job with the Tacoma Rainiers down at Cheney Stadium, and he is the host of the Dugout Club there and does a great job along with Pat and many others. So now I'd like to leave you with a song that came from 2008, and it was celebrating the great season of the Seattle Mariners, Talking baseball. And this is just a slice of that song from Terry Cashman. Have a great rest of the week. Well, Lou's crew had done it. Edgar's double won it. And Mariner fans were dancing in the dome. The playoff drought had finally died. Joey Chorus sat and cried. A three-game sweep of the Yankees sent those pinstripes home. We're talking baseball. Russ Davis and Pinella, Mariners baseball. Tino Bobby Ayala, oh, the heat that Randy Johnson threw. There was Edgar, the bone, and Wilson, too. And there was A-Rod, Junior and Sweet Lou. Peloton, let's go! This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. 
You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.